0: All right, um, I, I know we already uh, opened in prayer, but we're going to open in prayer again. Um, so if you would, bow your heads with me as I pray. Thank you, Lord God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for this group of believers and our faith in Christ Jesus and, and the love that we have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for us in heaven. Please, Lord, fill this church with your, the knowledge of, your, of you and with all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we may walk in a manner worthy of our Lord Jesus Christ, Fully pleasing to Him. Let this church bear fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of you, God, being strengthened with all power according to your glorious might. Give this church all endurance and patience with joy. Cause us to give thanks to you, Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Fill us with thanksgiving for your deliverance from the domain of darkness, for transferring us into the kingdom of your beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Open the eyes of our heart as we may attempt to see the image of the invisible God through your word. Amen. Uh, My wife Millie and I were talking with an insurance agent this week and he was asking all kinds of questions for our home insurance and uh, we were getting a quote and so we were um, going through this list of kind of mundane questions and one of the questions he asked was, if our pool was more than 50 feet from a sidewalk? And our answer was yes, and his response was, awesome. Uh, He also asked if our dog was vicious or had a history of attacks. We said no. His answer was, that's awesome. So either this guy is the most amazed person in the world, and he's just flabbergasted and amazed by everything that happens to him all day long, which would be interesting, or more likely, we, we use the word awesome to mean something different than the word really means, right? The word awesome means to be filled with awe and wonder. And uh, none of those answers that we gave really should have filled him with awe and wonder, right? But I don't know if you can think of a, if, you know, something comes to mind, and experience, uh, a sight, a sound, or, or something that you experienced that filled you with awe and wonder, made it hard for you to catch your breath, made it so that um, you almost forgot to breathe. <clears throat> but that's what the word awesome really means, And um, I'm going to propose a couple things to you. I'm not going to spend a ton of time um, arguing these points. We're going to spend our time in Colossians. But uh, I'm going to just introduce a couple ideas that I have. If you don't agree with me, that's okay. Our time in Colossians will still be beneficial. But I'm going to make two assertions. And the first is that we as human beings are worshipers. We are wired to worship, and we can't not worship. You following with me? So, every human being in the history of the world is a worshiper. We have been wired to worship. We, we, we want to see something amazing. We want to be filled with awe. And we want to um, worship and give our praise to that thing that we are amazed by. Um, so, if you look back at human history, which we're not going to do this morning, I mean, it's hard to find... A time or a place where somebody wasn't worshipping something. If you look back at the history of Israel, you think about the times when they weren't worshipping God. They always, there was never really a time where they just stopped worshipping. They would just, either they were worshipping Yahweh or they were worshipping some false God, but they never stopped worshipping. Uh, so that, that's my first, you know, uh, idea that I'm going to propose to you as something, just an observation that I, I think is true of uh, human nature. Um, the second is that the degree to which um, our thing that we are worshiping is worthy of our worship is the degree to which we're going to be satisfied and happy in general with our lives. So I have a list of things here that might be maybe an idol to, to some people. Um, so you can look through the list. I'm not going to read through them. I'm going to pick two of them, and I'm just going to just kind of illustrate my second point, which is again, that the more worthy of our worship, the thing is that we're worshiping, the better and happier our lives will be. So if you look through this list, um, one of the things on the list here is amusement. So the word amusement is another one of those words that we've changed the meaning a little bit. But the root of amusement is that ah is like a knot, right? So like arrhythmia, right, is when a heart is without rhythm or an atheist is somebody who is without God, right? So, a uh, muse muse means to think. So amusement, originally, was more of a distraction, something that caused you to stop thinking. Um, so when I say amusement, what I'm thinking in particular is the kind of amusement that is just mind-numbing, empty brain calories. Uh, I'm thinking of things like um, FaceTube, Snapgram, Pin uh, Pinchat, those I don't know if I have all those websites and, and applications names right, but you get the idea. These, these things that you can endlessly scroll through and endlessly look at, um, you know, cat videos and people making fools of themselves and people getting into petty arguments about nothing, and um, those are the kinds of things that there, there's a, a seemingly endless amount of time that you can spend on that. You check for updates without ceasing. You uh, devote your time, uh, kind of throughout the day. You always have that. At the, you're meditating on those things day and night. Um, that that is somebody who's you know maybe worships amusement. All right. So the next example we're going to look at is family. So you know this is a group of real people, not uh, internet people, but real people uh, bound in unconditional love who uh, live under one roof and work together for for their common good. Um, your spouse is the person that in your whole single life you waited for. Uh, and some of us who are, uh, you know, depending on where you're at in your stage of, you know, marriage, unmarried, that, uh, that might mean more, than, more than to, to some than others. But that, that person that you've been longing for and waiting for your whole life. Your kids are your world. You give up everything for them. You even willingly suffer for your family. You'd lay down your life for them and they for you. But eventually people in your family are going to let you down. Uh, whether in big ways or in small ways. Um, after so many years, your spouse starts to get on your nerves as much as they bring you joy. And uh, you you know that your spouse is not seemingly lim- limitless like the internet, right? So, um, you know, you, you start to learn the ends of their jokes uh, as well as you know their faults. And um, your kids, you know, as they get older, they Bring about lots of sleepless nights, and uh, just like they did when they were babies, but now they're not cute and cuddly anymore, and, and they're not, uh, they, don't, they can't really make up for it like they used to when they would snuggle in. Um, eventually, your kids will leave. They'll uh, leave home, and if you're lucky. Um, so, of course, just like in Paul's day, when he was writing to the, to the church at Colossae, um, people today don't generally have one God. They have many gods. And, uh, but if you just take those two examples, I would, I would again, my assertion is that um, somebody whose main God is family is going to be generally more fulfilled and happy than somebody whose main God is amusement, who spends most of their time mindlessly going through uh, page after page on the Internet, right? So um, my point is that, again, our what we're worshiping What we're devoting our lives to and our time to has a a lot to do and how happy we are with whether or not that thing deserves our worship. And what Paul wants us to see in Colossians is that Jesus is the only thing worthy of our worship. And he's more than worthy. And because he's more than worthy, there's no end to the joy that our lives can have if we have our mind rightly set on him. So um I'm going to do a quick if you would turn in your bibles to um Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to do a quick overview of the book. There's several slides here where you won't miss too much if you can't read every word on the slide. <laughs> There's a lot on the slide and I realized after I got here this morning that some of them are a little hard to read. We did make them bigger, but some of them are still a little hard to read. Um and uh this is good. It gives you a quick overview of the four chapters of the book of Colossians. We're going to spend our time uh, really on verses uh, 15 through 20 of chapter 1. Um, but just to give you a quick idea of where, um, what, what, what's happening in the book of Colossians, the church in Colossae was who Paul was writing to. And um, that church is probably a church that Paul never visited. So Paul didn't personally know many of these people. Epaphras started the church, which was one of Paul's uh, followers. And so he um, he started that church in Colossae, and Paul had heard about the church in Colossae through Epaphras, but he had probably never met anybody else there in this church. He was writing to this church to help them with their theology, um, and specifically their theology about Jesus. There seemed to be, and, and like in many of Paul's letters, we don't necessarily have the problem, but we have Paul's answer. So we can infer what the problem was. So we, we, we believe the problem to be something along the lines of syncretism. And that word just means blending other things in with Jesus. So it wasn't that they were saying that Jesus was no longer important. They were saying Jesus is good, but they were being told you also need to follow certain Jewish traditions. So it's Jesus plus these traditions. Or there seemed to be this focus on angels, especially in Colossae at the time. And so um, the other thing that, uh, that you'll see showing up throughout the, chat, the book of Colossians is this focus on angels and demons. There might have been um, a, a misunderstanding of needing to pray to angels to help defend against demons, or maybe a, just an outsized fear of demons. And so those are some of the things that Paul is, is responding to. So after a quick introduction... Um, Paul's typical introduction at the beginning of the book of Colossians, he, there's a prayer, he shares his prayer for their church at Colossae, and that's the prayer I prayed when we started. If you were observant this morning, that was the prayer I prayed at the beginning. I thought that was appropriate because that's the, the prayer that Paul shares right before he goes into our passage today. Um, our passage that we're focused on is actually thought by most New Testament scholars to be a hymn, a first century hymn, so you'll see that when we, when we go to the, the slide that actually shows the verses that we're, that we're going to be focusing on. And there's a, a very lyrical sense to it. it, using some of the language that Paul doesn't typically use and, and kind of some of the formats that Paul doesn't typically use. The metaphors are, you know, are not the long, run-on sentences that Paul likes to, to use. right? So it's, it's probable that Paul either adopted just basically cut and pasted this into his letter because it was exactly the kind of thing that that the theology that was shared in this hymn was the kind of thing he wanted to share with the Colossians, or he adapted it, right? He took a hymn, he changed some things, and he inserted it, something that maybe they were familiar with already, and put it into his letter as kind of a a starting point uh, to say, I want to tell you some things about Jesus, and here's a summary of all the things that I want to tell you. So we'll look at, um, again, this is, this is uh, where we're going to spend most of our time is a slide very similar to this um, with a couple changes here and there. So again, if you can't read it here, it's in your Bible. There's nothing different. But what I want you to see here is kind of the stanza and refrain and stanza setup. So you can see, um, you know, if you just look at the very beginning of verse, um, it says five, I guess we lost the one. That's supposed to be verse 15. Uh, verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. If you skip down there to the middle of verse 18, which begins the second stanza, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Um, so you can see if you kind of go through, I've got the margins lined up, so those, that left margin lines up with the, the stanzas that, that kind of match up. So there's a parallelism here that's happening in the first stanza and the second stanza, and then there's a refrain in the middle. Um, some see it just as two stanzas, some see the refrain in the middle, however you want to slice it and dice it, it's very clear that this seems to be some kind of a lyrical poem, and there's lots of parallelism. So the first stanza's focus, as you can see here, we're going to read through it here in a second, is on creation. Christ being Lord of creation. The second stanza's focus is on um, new creation. So we're going to see Christ as both the Lord of creation and, of new, and the, the new creation. So I'm going to go ahead and read this for us. Um, uh, basically, uh, to finish the introduction to the Colossians, after this, Paul makes some applications and then basically goes into how Christ, if he is all in all, will affect everyday relationships. Your relationships in church, your relationships at home, your relationships at work. Um, and just kind of goes through all of life and saying, if Christ is all in all, live this way. And so that's really the book of Colossians. That's, that's, it's a short, good book. I highly recommend after, after our little teaser of the book today, you go home and read it. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful little book. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and read for you. So follow along w- with me, if you will, in verse, starting in verse 15. He, that's talking about Jesus, is the image of the invisible God For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So if you heard that, and you thought, yeah, I get it, that's good, we're ready to move on, then you either were asleep, or you know your Christology in this passage really well, because there is a ton packed in, and I literally... I, you know, as I prepared for this, literally looked up you know, sermons. I love to listen to other people's takes on the same things I'm going to preach on. Each one of these verses could be a 45 minute sermon because there is just so much there. So, we're going to go through, we're going to look at 14 things that these verses say in six, six verses. We're going to look at 14 things that, Je- that is said about Jesus don't get nervous. I know sometimes you're thinking like normally a a sermon has two or three points. So we're going to look quickly through 14 things. Our idea today is we're going to get the big picture of what Paul is trying to say about Jesus in these six verses, because what Paul wants us to feel is Jesus is all in all. He is Lord, and we need to walk worthy. Both before and after um, this passage, Paul, Paul calls the Colossians to walk worthy, and then he paints this beautiful picture of who Jesus is. So hopefully uh despite my uh, failings, we get a, a picture of who Jesus is through this. <clears throat> so again, you can see the poetry and the parallelism. Hopefully you heard that. You, you recognize those phrases that repeat it, And so we'll see that as we go line by line. So let's take a, a quick look at the uh, 14 things that this says about Jesus. The first is, we're just going to go in order in verse 15. So we're, we're focused now in this first stanza on, the, the, on creation that um, he is the image of the invisible God, and right off the bat, that's one of those things that can make your mind go a little numb and make you go cross-eyed. He is the image of the invisible God. Something that's invisible doesn't have an image. H- how can Jesus be the image? You know, take a picture of something you can't see, and then show me that picture. right? It, doesn't, it's, it's, it boggles our mind. It's poetry because what it's trying to say, and, and the first thing that makes me think of is uh, Hebrews 1.3, where Jesus is called the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And so uh, Paul starts off the bat with a, with a doozy here, saying that Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. He is the image of the invisible God. As I mentioned earlier, polytheism, or having many gods, was very common in Colossae. And Colossae in particular was known for a one-stop shop for, for gods. There was a god for everything if you needed if you were having trouble uh, conceiving, if you needed uh, your your harvest to be good, you know there was a god for every occasion in Colossae, and um, Colossae was yeah known for that. So so for uh, for one, Paul was making a statement here that about God, the God, the image of the God was was uh, a very countercultural from from a Colossian perspective, just from a pagan perspective. There was also a popular Gnostic philosophy which was probably in the next century, maybe maybe started to take roots here, but this the word that, that Paul uses um, here in uh, verse 12, 119 that we're going to look at in a second, this uh, fullness, as well as the verse in um, chapter 2, verse 9, where he talks about Christ being the fullness of God, uh, dwelling in bodily form. That word fullness is um, I, better, I better look at it because I'm going to say it wrong. Pleroma, and that same word for pleroma in this Gnostic philosophy said that basically Big G God was a combination of all these little gods or these basic, these basic ideas like um, you know, wisdom and, and things like that. And the combination of all those together was called the fullness or pleroma that's what, that's what Paul is saying Jesus is. So from a Gnostic perspective, um, some would say, well, that, that's not what Paul had in mind because that really didn't become popular to the next century. Others would say that that idea was starting to become popular already. Uh, but that idea is basically that um, you know, Jesus is that. He, he, he is that, you know, that combination of all the good things. He is God. He is the fullness of God. And in, in contrast to that Gnostic philosophy... In the Roman uh, Emperor, Empire, really the only offensive thing you could do from a, from a um, you know, religious perspective was to say, there is one and true, only true God. And, and uh, really, any other thing religious-wise would go. In Colossae, in some of the areas where the temples were and the shrines were, there would be an inscription above it that would say, Caesar is Lord. Uh, you, you're familiar with the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. Caesar was the divine who brought peace to the world. So you can see again the conflict in, in how Paul is describing Jesus as both being you know, anti-Gnostic, anti-pagan, and anti-Rome. And uh, in, in, in this is some of the things he was, he was wanting the, the, the Colossians to be fully understanding about who Jesus was. The next is, he is the firstborn of all creation. So this is a bit of a problematic, there's a couple of problematic things that, that Paul um, says in these first verses, but if you look at the context, we can, we, we can understand these rightly. Does that mean Jesus was the first created? Well, no, clearly not, because he, Paul's going to go on and say that Jesus created all things. Everything that's been created was created by Jesus, so it doesn't make sense to say Jesus was created. I think it's helpful to look at um, Psalm 89, 27. That same uh, idea is, is uh, here, Psalm eighty-nine, twenty-seven, is David recounting what God had told him about himself. So this is God talking to David, and he says he will make David the firstborn, the highest of all the kings of the earth. Now what did God mean by that when he was talking to David? Did he mean David was going to be the oldest king and all the other kings on the earth would be David's brothers? No, you're probably familiar with plenty of Bible stories where the firstborn was in a position of authority, the firstborn was the heir, and in a position of privilege. So when Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn of creation, what he's saying is that Jesus is in a position of of privilege over all creation. The NIV is helpful. If you have an NIV version, it'll say that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, not of all creation. So he's, he's not part of the creation, but he's over that creation. So that's really a positional statement that Paul's making. So taken in context, we see that Paul is saying Jesus is the supreme heir over all creation. Verse 16 we start talking about the actual act of creation. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. So later in the book, and I'm sorry, later in the um, yeah, in, in chapter two, Paul's gonna talk a little bit about rulers and authorities. He's talking about demons in particular. So this would be either just focused on demons and angels, or it could also some of these sometimes these word for like rulers and authorities. Could, and thrones could mean um, human kings. So whether he's talking about human kings, he's certainly talking about angels and demons, but basically what he's saying here is that Jesus created all those things, and that concept isn't foreign to us, that he who creates has some authority over, right? So you know, even as a child, you know, children understand, hey, I made that, that's mine. Right? So that's what Paul's claiming of Jesus here. He made all things, including angels and demons, which we already talked about was a focus in Colossae at the time. This idea that you needed to pray to angels, or that there was demons out there that you needed help from, that you needed angels' help uh, with. Um. And so those are some of the things, just like in Hebrews chapter 1, Um most of Hebrews chapter one is focused on how Jesus is better than the angels. He's above and superior to the angels. So that's one of the things that is being drawn out here. the um, The next thing, uh, the next group of things here, he is um, all things were created through him and for him. So those are the next two uh, items that we're gonna. To focus on that it says about Jesus, all things are created through him and for him. So the triune God not only created all things in, through, and by Jesus, but for Jesus. Another big concept that we could spend a lot of time talking about. That means not only is every atom and subatomic particle and every star and every solar system and every galaxy... Made by Jesus, in Jesus, through Jesus, but for Jesus. That's the short answer of why. If you, have, you ever have a, a child ask why, 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 right? Why does a thing exist? The short answer is for Jesus. That's why all things exist, and that's the the next claim that Paul is making here about Jesus. Now, um, you know, if you've read your Bible for very long, you know there's hard things in the Bible. This is one of those hard things. It, it would be it would be one thing to say you know, look at a beautiful star or a beautiful flower and say that was created to glorify Jesus. But it's another thing to say that demons, which is in the list here, were created not just through Jesus and, and by Jesus, but for Jesus. The purpose of demons is for Jesus. That's that's even, even uh, you know, those who are against him are, are really created for him. And uh, again, hard for us to understand. It would be easier if if uh, God would have just left some of those harder things out and just told us the nice, easy things, but He doesn't. He we have to we have to look at His whole Word. In verse 17, we have the sixth thing: He is before all things. Really, the focus here is again both temporal. You know, He's before all things in time. He was before anything that was created is created, and He is also before all things in primacy or order or um, you know. His his importance, positional supremacy over all creation, and just when you thought we were starting to cover ground we've already covered, and okay, now it's going to be easy. The next thing uh, Paul says is that in Him all things hold together. Um, so not only did Jesus create all things by uh, by in and through Himself, not only is it all for Him, but He is actively holding it all together. Elsewhere in the Bible, Paul says that he is upholding the word, the, the world by his power, and so the idea here is again not uh, the blind watchmaker who who started the the creation, got it wound it up and let it go, but he is actively involved in every moment of every day. Uh, again, it's hard to understate this. We could we could spend an hour just talking about what that means and and the the ramifications of. Jesus actively holding up everything uh, in the universe at all times. And again, we have to point out the the hard part of this is that that means that not only is God long-suffering and allowing demons and, and sinners who hate him and are opposed to him to continue on this earth, he's not just withholding his wrath currently, but he is also actively upholding him. If you've ever had this experience as a parent, where your child is just giving you fits, and you just have this, this feeling that come over you, I brought you into this world, I feed you, I clothe you, I, I give you the place to sleep, and you're going to treat me that way? Can you imagine how Jesus must feel, right? He is being opposed every, every second of every day by demons, and yet these demons are specifically listed here as something that God is upholding. And people who are uh, as anti-God as you can imagine... Um, he's Jesus is holding their atoms and making their electrons continue to spin around their nucleus every second of every day uh, again all mind-boggling stuff and that's that's Paul's intent is to boggle our minds when God's presence filled the holy of holies at the end of exodus we could say that God is everywhere right that's true God is omnipresent, God is everywhere, but there's a a sense in the end of Exodus where it talks about God being specifically somewhere, right? He specifically was in the Holy of Holies, even though it didn't mean he wasn't also everywhere, right? In the same way, uh, now as we transition to the new creation, we can say that Jesus is Lord over all, but specifically he is head of his church, I failed to mention this earlier. You notice I added in these um, arrows here. So what I want you to see by that is we have this statement at the beginning of each of the stanzas. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. In the beginning of the creation stanza, it is he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And then you see the four in verse 16 and 19 there. So those four statements are there saying um, this is why Jesus is has this firstborn position. This is why he is preeminent. This is why he is first place. It's because he created all things. It's because um, in him the fullness of God was able to dwell. So I just want you to see that as we go through here, we want you want to connect that back and say, why does why Jesus get this primary position? Paul gives reasons below there as to why he's in that position. Um. So as we switch gears here to now say, now into the new creation, uh, Paul is saying that he is, he is the beginning, he is the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So firstborn from the dead, again we're mirroring that firstborn of all creation. What does it mean that he's firstborn of the dead? Um, well, he is um, the beginning of the new creation. He was the first m- man born, think about this for a second, he's the first man born without a sin nature. Right? Adam and Eve didn't have a sin nature when they were created, but they weren't born. So he's the first baby born without a sin nature. Although he didn't experience this world without the curse, right? He, he experienced the effects of the curse, although internally and morally they weren't, he didn't have that sin nature. He did experience a world that was affected by sin. He felt pain. He felt hunger. He felt what it, was, what it felt like to be sinned against. So even though he was without sin, he experienced sin and death around him uh, constantly. And he experienced death personally on his death on the cross. And that's part of what is in mind here as firstborn from the dead. Another, another thing to think about here is he is the only man who never deserved God's wrath and he is the only man currently to have ever felt God's full wrath. So what it means that Jesus is the firstborn on the dead um, means all those things, but the good news is that he also means that he was resurrected. He was born out of the dead. So he, that grave couldn't hold him, and, and he, was, he was resurrected. But he's just the first. He's the first fruits of the harvest, it says elsewhere in the Bible. Um, it, and that makes him the first uh, to be raised of a great harvest of saints that will be raised in the future. And everything he is preeminent is the 11th thing that we're going to look at. Preeminent is not a word we use all the time, but it just means first place, supreme, paramount. Um, again, why is he preeminent? We're going to look at that in, in, in the arrows here now in the next uh, couple sections. Uh, verse 20, I'm sorry, uh, verse 19, "In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell." This is a phrase we've already looked at. And again, it's one of those concepts that's just hard to wrap your mind around. Jesus was fully man, and yet fully God. And um, all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. And I want you to remember this pleased, God was pleased here, and that replies down further, he was also pleased to reconcile things to himself, making peace by the blood of the cross. So keep that pleased, God being pleased to dwell in Jesus, and that pleased kind of flows down through the rest of these arrows as well. This is uh, an, an, another tricky verse. Um, I'm sorry, I'm skipping ahead. Um, so the um, so Jesus, being again fullness of God, hard to wrap your mind around, but uh, he's the Word made flesh, and dwelling among us. He's the great High Priest and the and the one true King. And being King, he will reconcile to himself all things, which is the 13th thing we're going to look at. Now this is another tricky verse, uh, reconciling himself. When we think of reconciled, you might think of you know, a relationship that's damaged and then it's mended and you're reconciling. You're embracing that person and things are good now. Does that mean Paul is teaching universalism? All will be reconciled to Christ? Well, in this case, we can, again, because we, we have a dozen other places where Paul is more clearly focused on the negative side of things, Right here, th- remember, we're, in, we're in, in the new creation. So he's talking about new creation and reconciling on the positive side, right? Reconciling his people, reconciling creation. But when he says reconcile, all things will be reconciled, you can, you can, you can think of it as all things being made right. And um, one of the things that made me think of is, we have lots of stories where there's a lot wrong and in the story, you're longing for the thing to be made right. And at the end, somebody returns. And in some, a lot of the stories, it's the one true king. A couple of places that it made me think of, um, my son Logan is going through um, the Phantom Tollbooth uh, for, for school this year. Um, in that, the end of the book, rhyme and reason return and reign once more. So if you're familiar with that book, that might help. Um, another one that half, most of you probably won't be familiar with is the court jester at the end. Again, this is a common theme. The, the true king is off the throne, and at the end, the true king is re- re- restored to the throne, and things are back the way they should be. But the best picture of this I, c- I could think of in literature was uh, Chronicles of Narnia, which is an easy one to make analogies to the Bible to, because that's what C.S. Lewis had in mind when he wrote it. But think of the white witch and the lion, the witch, in the wardrobe, and the eternal winter, always winter and never Christmas, right? And, and it's, been, it's been winter here for years, and then what happens? Aslan returns, and spring springs, right? So it's this return of the king that reconciles things. Now, when Aslan returns and reconciles things, are his enemies reconciled as in he's giving them hugs? No, this is a reconciliation of putting things right? And putting down the opposition, so all uh, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But um, some will be bowing to honor their king, and others will be bowing to the their foe that defeated them. Right. So there is a difference there, and, and just something good to point out. But that reconciliation is another huge concept. He's going to reconcile all things, whether in heaven or on earth. There, the cur- this is you know made me think of um, Joy to the World. Uh, the Lord has come, and he is going to uh, make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. This whole world is groaning under the birth pains, right? It's, it wants to get back to the way things used to be in the garden. And that is um, what's in mind here is, is we're, this perfect king that's going to come back and set things right. It's the king that was promised since David to rule in righteousness for, forever, and how does this king establish his kingdom? Is it through conquest? No, it's actually stated here in the last statement about Jesus. He, he makes peace by the blood of his cross. And this peace is a true peace. This isn't a feeling of peace. It's not a, a peaceful feeling that you get when you're looking at a calm, serene lake or, or you know, and, and, and uh, you're all by yourself kind of a peace. This is a peace of a uh, making peace. Think of it like making peace in wartime, right? You are, we are hostile with an almighty, holy God. We are in darkness, and God is in light, right? And so both before and after this, Paul uses those, those word pictures of being in darkness and being brought into light, or being hostile to God and being reconciled to him. And so that's what's happening here, is Jesus is making peace. He's the ultimate peacemaker, and bringing together God and man. It's a costly peace. This cost him his blood on the cross, and it's a lasting peace. This is an ultimate reconciliation. Putting things back the way they should be, breaking the curse so that God can again walk with his people in the garden for endless days. Uh, last week, if you were here last week, Mr. Whitney showed a video of, of the names of Jesus. This, it was really kind of neat to see them spoken and, and, and on the screen back to back to back. It was hundreds of names. I didn't count. I lost count. But according to uh, Billy Sunday, there are 256 names given in the Bible for the Lord Jesus Christ, and I suppose this was because He was infinitely beyond all that one name could express. So that's what we tried to do here uh, this morning. Uh, again, it, you know, I, I barely—we're barely scratching the surface on all these on the, all these topics. But hopefully, some of those things um, are, are you know things that will make you think about how great um, a, a God that we have. So what are some takeaways that we can, we can make from this? Uh, first, again, what Paul says immediately after this in verse 21 and through 23 is that you were hostile to God and you were reconciled. So Paul immediately makes a personal connection. It is great news that there is a king coming who's going to be the king that rules in righteousness and reconcile all things to himself. But the even better news personally is that you have been reconciled to this king. This king has chosen you to be brought from darkness into light by the blood of his cross. The next thing we can um, that we can apply here is Jesus deserves first place. Uh, I like the way uh, J.D. Greer says it. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. As soon as we start adding things to Jesus, we're actually taking away from the worship that we, that we really, that he deserves entirely. He, he deserves first place. I don't recommend this, but if you think about telling your spouse, darling, of all the women that I love, I love you the most, right? You are on the top of the list. I'll show you the rest of the list. There's like ten others, but you are number one, and I just want you to know that, right? That's, that's, your wife is going to say, sorry, I'm either, I'm either the only one on the list... Or I'm not on the list at all. And that's exactly how it works with Jesus. He he is a jealous God and he does not not want to share our list with this list of other gods that we're also worshipping. Paul, again, applies this. We talked about this briefly in the summary, but he goes on for the rest of the book of Colossians and he talks about at home with our children and our spouse, at at church with our fellow believers, at work with employees and employers. We We spend our entire lives around people who, uh, to varying degrees, don't deserve our best. But Jesus does. And that is what we're being asked to do. Paul's asking us to treat others better than they deserve, because Jesus treated us better than we deserve. And ultimately, it's all for him. And that brings him glory. Both directly before and directly after, at, at the beginning of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, Um, After this, Paul asks the Colossians to walk worthy. This walk worthy is not an idea of saying, the king wants you to be worthy so that he'll accept you. But instead, because the king has accepted you, and because this king is so great, walk worthy. Follow this king, and do so the way he would want us to, because he has inspired us to, not because we're afraid he's going to, you know, cut us out, but because he's inspired us to walk with him. So, you're, wa- you're worshiping something, what is it? Uh, I think, um, you know, back to, to the children of Israel, right? They were always worshiping something. A lot of times it was God and something else. Sometimes it wasn't God at all, it was just something else. Um, but that's the hard thing we have to ask ourselves. What are we worshiping? So back to my original points, you were made to worship the image of the invisible God, the king of the universe, the one worthy of our praise. Because he is infinitely great, worshiping him is infinitely satisfying. Back to my, my, two, my two things that I started with. We're all worshiping something, and whatever we're worshiping, the, uh, the degree to which it's worthy of our worship is the degree to which we will be happy and satisfied. Because Jesus is infinitely worthy, there is no end to the satisfaction and joy that comes in worshiping Jesus. And because of that, there's no end to the glory that we can give back to Jesus. He is glorified in our satisfaction. When we see that Jesus is infinitely worthy of our worship like nothing else is, he is glorified, which is our purpose in this life and the next. So I'll close with the words of Oswald Chambers, who say it better than I can. A man or a woman does not know God who does not know God demands an infinite satisfaction from other human beings, which they cannot give. And in the case of the man, he becomes tyrannical and cruel. It springs from this one thing the human heart must have its satisfaction, but there is only one being who can satisfy that last abyss of the human heart, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son Lord Jesus um, we just uh, we praise you uh, Lord, for who you are and um, what you've done and we uh, are just we see through a, a mirror dimly we we just uh we just see shapes and shadows and um, when we see you um, all this Uh, the, the walking worthy would be so easy if we really saw who you really were. And I pray that you would do that for us. I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, help us to see you in a way that we've never seen you before, and that that would cause us to love you more. And the more we love you, the more we know you, the more you're glorified in our lives. I thank you for our time. I thank you for this, your word. I thank you for revealing yourself to us through your son. And I thank you for um, the book of Colossians and our time together this morning. And I pray that you would uh, bless it to our hearts, help it to grow and, and flower, and, uh, and help us to bring you glory and honor with our lives. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.